Jesus' name. We commit this time to you. We bless you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. All right, y'all ready? Give me your best ear tonight. Here at Hanukkah, 2016. All right, I'm going to deal with the Hanukkah story a little bit, but I'm also going to deal with some other things. In this, I want to entitle this sermon, Crushed, Broken, and Burning. That God's going to do a work in our lives. Amen? So in John 10, 22, it says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus was celebrating Hanukkah right here. The Feast of Dedication, um, Hanukkah means dedication. So this is what it was referring to in the wintertime. And so Jesus was there in Jerusalem, walking around, looking at all the lights that were lit and how beautiful it was. You know, and as I think about the story of Hanukkah tonight, I really want to talk about this because it's on my heart. But you know, generations, like in the 60s, there was a real move of the enemy to bring a lot of pollution and corruption into our society. And then not only that, but you see the next following generation, Generation X, which was my generation, we saw that just as the Bible predicted a lot of sin, a lot of, a lot of things increased in society, and then now we have the millennial generation, and we see that the, just as the Bible predicted, sin is continuing to increase. The Bible says because of the increase of wickedness, the love will grow cold of many people. And so in society today, we're seeing that, that there's a lot of an increase of wickedness. Now, every generation has been wicked, and, and there's always been a lot of wickedness throughout history that we've seen in different ways. But the Bible predicts that in the last days, it would be like it was in the days of Lot, and like it was in the days of Noah, and that there would be an increase of wickedness. And you may be looking out in society right now and seeing a generation emerge that will see the rise of the Antichrist and also will accept him in many ways. I don't say that lightly. I believe that this is upon us. We're living in the latter days before the coming of the Lord. So there's a lot of good that's going to be happening, but there's a lot of evil. And I'm sharing this because it goes with this story, with a Hanukkah story. And just as we're going to see this increase of wickedness and we're going to see a lot of things going on in society that doesn't need to be going on, but people are going to continue to get more and more immersed in sin. And we see that with the area of the occult and we see it with sexual immorality and we see it in other areas um, with abortion and bloodshed. It's just like there's such an increase of these things in our society. And with the millennial generation that's coming up, we're desperately going to need a move of God. Y'all hear what I'm saying? In my generation, in Generation X, back in the 90s, I remember how they were talking about how, how things were going and they were really concerned about that generation and praying. And, and God sent revival and, and a lot of good came out of that revival. But again, we're seeing this generation come up, this millennial generation. And people that have studied the millennial generation have said about this generation, they said that these younger people coming up, that the 700 Club and Charisma Magazine and many others are doing studies, and, and I've read up on it, 
But they're saying that by and large, most of the millennials are very much, very um, liberal in their views, politically liberal, extremely politically liberal. And they're also very pro-abortion, pro-homosexuality, pro-homosexual marriage. And they're also ones that would be more apt to say toward Israel in the occupation. They would be against Israel being a nation and would be more pro-Palestinian. And this is concerning, isn't it? This generation coming up, and many of them are saying, well, you know, the church is, is a bunch of hypocrites or whatever, but the truth is that's just a cop-out. I've grown up in church my whole life. My, my dad has too, and there's always been a few hypocrites here and there, and there always will be. The Bible says that. But the truth of the matter is that even though there's a couple hypocrites here and there, if somebody is a real follower of Jesus Christ, then they're going to obey his word and be in God's house anyway. See, the thing is, I've seen people get saved. I'll use my wife as an example. And when she gave her life to Jesus, she never knew the Lord. Obviously, she did not grow up in church. She grew up in a family that was far from God. And when she accepted Christ as her Savior around the age of 29... You know, she'd come out of a lot of sin herself. And so she so loved the Lord that she just wanted to be at his house. And she'd asked the pastor, is there anything I could do, anything to serve? And, and the only thing that really they needed was somebody to clean. And she joyfully came there and cleaned the church and loved every minute of it. She didn't have hardly any money, but she gave what she could. And she was just hungry and on fire for God and loved the Lord. That's a true Christian. And I know that there's, there's people in church that <clears throat> there's going to be a few hypocrites here and there. <clears throat> that they don't really know the Lord. They, uh, they say they do, but they don't. Their life obviously doesn't reflect that. But there's also a lot of people in churches that really do love the Lord. But they're just trying to learn how to overcome their sin. They're trying to learn how to overcome the flesh and and how to be an overcomer and live a victorious Christian life. And how easy it is for anybody to point their finger at that and start judging that. But how many knows that the Lord is full of grace and mercy and is going to help us be overcomers? And I remember when I was younger in the Lord, I struggled with my sins of the past, just like most people in this room and most people hearing. You have to learn how to be an overcomer. And how easy it is to judge people in that state. But I would think that if the Lord looked down and he saw some people over here that were really going to his house that loved him and were really trying and they were going to overcome and then you see people over here that are real judgmental, critical and pointing saying the church a bunch of hypocrites, I'm not going to go to church. Who do you think the Lord's more pleased with? And so we're seeing an emerging of a generation that may very well be, I'm not saying this lightly, I hope people hearing this don't just blow off what I'm saying. It very well could be the generation that's going to see the rise of the Antichrist. You understand that? It is very likely. I don't have time to get into this, but it, there's too many signs. I've, I'm a student of end-time prophecy. I'm telling you, every end-time prophecy that there is, is something's going on with all of them. And we see that from the time of Adam to Abraham was 2,000 years, from Abraham to Christ, 2,000, and from Christ till now is almost 2,000 years. Jesus, if our calendar is correct, which it's close, 
Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended in 33 A.D. We're pretty close to 2033. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to say we're getting close. You take seven years off of that for the tribulation time, it's getting close, isn't it? I mean, I just believe that it's near. I don't know the day nor the hour, and I'm not making any predictions. So don't somebody say that. I don't know. Seriously, I'll just delete the email or whatever. But I'm just saying that I, I don't make predictions. But I'm just telling you that his coming is near. I, don't, and I know you guys feel the same way. I don't have time for all that garbage. They can fight with themselves. I'm not making predictions. I'm saying that his coming's near. If somebody can't see the coming of the Lord is near, then they either don't know the Bible or they don't have a prayer life. His coming's near. All right, so with, this, with that said and understood, and with what's going on in this generation, the worst thing that can possibly happen is that the church began to make the mistake that was going on during the days of the Maccabees with Hanukkah. Okay, so let me explain all this. I'm going to read you the story. Antiochus Epiphanes was a crazy delusional Greek ruler over the area of Syria and most of the Middle East, okay? This was about 160 um, B.C., before Jesus came, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes was this ruler over the Middle East. He was a, a Greek ruler. He wanted to conquer Israel fully and sought to do away with God's word and culture and make all the Jews become little Greeks. He tried to prevent things like circumcision, the Sabbath being observed, celebrating feasts, keeping a kosher diet, studying Torah, or going to synagogue. He was successful at temporarily stopping the temple rituals, erecting a statue of Zeus, sacrificing a pig on the altar, then pouring the pig's broth over things like the Torah scrolls to defile everything. Do you understand? This isn't a new attack here. He put a statue in the temple area, was demanding them to worship it, he sacrificed a pig on the altar to defile the altar. Goes through and pours uh, pig broth everywhere trying to defile the temple. He desperately wanted to defile the entire temple. Erected shrines and altars throughout the entire land. And the people were forced to offer sacrifices to these demon gods as tokens of their acceptance of the new religion. Here's the problem. Some Jews were fine with it. But many were deeply troubled and stayed totally devoted to God. Those who disbelieved, or I'm sorry, those who disobeyed Antiochus and were faithful to the Lord were either tortured or killed or both. Their bodies were mutilated, and while they were still alive and breathing, they were crucified. The wives and the sons whom they had circumcised were strangled. Some were crucified with the dead bodies of their children hanging around their neck. So this was a violent, I mean a very violent like ISIS, a very violent attack against the Jewish people. And if Antiochus was successful at exterminating the people of God and exterminating anything to do with that culture and establishing just a Greek culture there, if he was successful, you have to understand that we would, the stage would not have been set for the coming of the Messiah. It was impossible for Jesus to come and fulfill um, as the Messiah, there had to be a Jewish people, there had to be a temple, there had to be a Jewish culture for him to come into. And I believe somehow Satan knew something was up and was trying to attack and, and, and circumvent or, or, or stop somehow the coming of the Messiah. And the problem was, when you look at this, that some people were okay with assimilating. 
That's concerning, isn't it? Because in our generation, I see the same thing. That's why I'm talking about this earlier, about this end-time generation and the, the warnings. The Bible says the love of many will grow cold, like I mentioned. The Bible says that there will be a tendency toward lukewarmness. And, and, and the Bible says that there will be a lot of deception. And, and, and so you can see all of this going on. And as the, during the days of Antiochus, he sent all these different emissaries that went throughout the land and they were forcing people to offer up those token sacrifices to their demon gods. And, and one of the, the emissaries were there and they told Metahias, um, who was well, the leader of the Maccabees, but not yet, but before that, he told Metahias, he said, you need to make this offering because he was a well-respected man. And Metahias said, I will not do it. Far be it from me to be unfaithful to God and his word. I won't do it. And another Jew came up to do it, and Metahias being a priest unto God, just like his ancient ancestors. You remember Phineas, That got the zeal of the Lord and drove that spear through that man and woman that were um, being unfaithful to the Lord? Just like his ancient ancestor, Phineas, um, Metahias killed that Jew right there, and it started a war. And they nicknamed him the Maccabees because it's a, a Hebrew word for hammer. And that they were strong and they were hammering back the enemy. But Menahias and his family, uh, Judah his son, they, they led this revolt against Antiochus. And even though they were this little bitty ragtag army of priestly warriors. And I read Maccabees and it was interesting how they would blast the shofar before going to battle. It was really cool. They understood that there was a spiritual battle going on here. And when they went to war, God gave them supernatural victory. And it took three years. It was a bloody war. But they drove back the Syrian army. And at the end of the war, they were able to go in. And they had to rebuild that altar. Clear away the old one. Okay? Rebuild the altar again. They had to cleanse the temple. And as they did all of that, they rededicated the temple unto God. That it would be holy, set apart unto him again. They only had enough oil for one day. So they poured that into the menorah. They lit it. And they thought it would just burn for one day. But miraculously, it burned for eight days. And that's where you get the Hanukkah menorah that we have today. That people have eight different ones. And there's one that's a servant candle making nine. But this was a serious, serious time. And I'm going to tell you today as you have this millennial generation emerging... The problem is, is that they have, many of them have been indoctrinated with the world. They've been indoctrinated by high school and teachers and college professors. And they've been indoctrinated in such a way that, that now they view the church as being critical or oppressive because we're not accepting of the sin of this world. There's a strong pressure. It's like a spiritual pressure to try to become more and more worldly in the church right now and this has been going on for about a decade and that's the worst thing that we can do I think everybody here knows the Bible enough to know in James 4 it says you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God and those that choose to be a friend of the world become an enemy of God See, in the Bible, hear me, this is so important. In the Bible, God said, don't mix things. God was trying to show them something. He said, don't take linen and mix it with wool and create like a shirt like that. 
They're two completely different fabrics. Don't mix like that. He said, don't take seed and mix it. Don't take corn and take wheat and put it together and stick it in the ground. He said, don't do that. You weren't supposed to mix things. And a lot of people know that if you take a horse and you take a donkey and you mix them, you get a mule. But what happens? The mule is sterile and can't reproduce. You know why there's a lot of sterility? It's because people have an unholy mixture now. They want to have the world, but they also want the Lord. And God has never been okay with that. It reminds me in the book of Malachi how, how God never would accept their sacrifices because the priests knew better, but they were sacrificing um, blind animals and lame animals and diseased animals on the altar. And God said, I'll never accept that. You're supposed to give me a pure spotless lamb. You're supposed to bring me the best. I'm supposed to be having the first fruits here. And just like in the days of, of the Maccabees, there were many of God's people that were assimilating into that culture and becoming just like the sinful world around them and they were forsaking the word of God. And I can see that today. I'm concerned because in many places, there, there's, and I'm not trying to be, please hear what I'm saying. I'm not being critical, but I think everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say maybe more of a seeker-friendly type of mentality, Okay. I think it's important to care about people and try to get people to come. I'm not saying that. But what's the problem is, is that now it's become a show. It really has. And I'm not just saying this to, to sound like it's a cliche or just to say something. I really believe this. It's become more of a show. It's a motivational speech. It's, it's a rock concert, smoking lights and a performance. And there's no power of God. There's no conviction. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When the Spirit of God really comes, you don't need anything else. I mean, He will convict the world of sin. Jesus said when He comes, He will convict. And as I keep reading these old revival stories, I'm trying to show you that there's a better way. That if we'll trust God to come down and touch people, He'll save people. I'm going to tell you something, too. When you take the world and the church and blend it together and it becomes sterile, and you're simply just trying to give people what they want to get rear ends in the seats... We're going to put on a good show for you. We'll water down everything in the sermon so it doesn't offend your little self, you know. And, and we'll, we'll make sure and put on a real good show for you. And whenever those people come in, they're not really truly being convicted of their sin and being born of the Spirit. They're just being entertained. And at best, all you're going to get is people mentally agreeing with you. There's not a heart change. God is looking for circumcised hearts, a new birth, where somebody is a new creation. Old things pass away. They're different. That cannot be accomplished by trying to marry the church and the world together. That will only produce sterility. The only way you're going to see tr people truly changed in their heart is when the Spirit of God comes in to convict. And I'm really concerned with what I see today. And I believe with all my heart as we're living in these latter days that the world is going to keep getting more and more dark. I don't have time to get into this if people want to go back and, and listen to the Spine of Prophecy series. But there's so much creepy stuff going on. The occult is exploding. 
There's even bizarre things going on, not just with cloning, but even mixing like animal and different DNA in people and producing what they call a chimeric and and, and hybrid humanity and all this weird stuff. This is just getting weird and it's only going to continue to get more and more weird. But that's the world getting darker and darker and darker and darker, and they're going to embrace the Antichrist. The Bible's clear. But the church is to come out from among them and be separate, be a holy people, touch not the unclean thing. And we're going to come out and be separate. And so what's going to happen is, is that the glory of God is going to come in our midst, and the glory will keep increasing and increasing and increasing. And people are going to come to the brightness of that dawn as they see that in the church. And it's going to become more and more of a distinction. But yet at the same time, here's the scary part. At the same time, though, there's going to be more of a a deceived apostate church that will marry itself to the world and that society will accept as Christianity, but it's not true Christianity. It's a hybrid. Did you all hear what I just said? And that false church will be what you read about in uh, Revelation 17 and 18, the whore of Babylon. But we're called to be a separate people. All right, so for God to do the work he's wanting to do in these latter days, it's going to take a move of God to get the job done. I think everybody agrees with this. I think everybody understands this in River of Life anyway. And that's why I refuse to start um, trying to make it like an entertainment thing and trying to, I've had people trying to talk to me about that. Why don't you do more of this? Look, It's not going to really change people. All it's going to do is entertain people. But people can go to a movie. People can go to a theme park to be entertained. Church isn't about making them feel good and be entertained. It's about coming to know Jesus and getting more like Jesus. All right, so let me share what God put on my heart about crushed, broken, and burning. In the days to come, I believe that God has spoken. He's sending revival. Not just to River of Life, but to other places. I believe with all my heart, as the Bible predicts, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, the Lord says. That we're about to see the greatest move of God the world's ever seen. And I'm not just saying that to make people get excited or to play on people's emotions or anything like that. I really believe that God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. I really do. And I believe that as God comes down with great power... Before the coming of the Lord, this will happen, that we will see the greatest revival that the world's ever seen. And it's going to sweep the world. There's going to be millions and millions and maybe even a billion or maybe even more than that people come to know Jesus as their Savior. It's going to sweep in an end time harvest all over the world. It's going to be uncontainable. Satan won't be able to stop him. And God is going to come down and he's going to move a great power and he's going to convict the church. There'll be some that reject what he's going to do and they'll go further and further into apostasy. But he's going to get his bride ready for the coming of the Lord. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to cleanse his people. And he's going to bring in a harvest. And that's going to prepare for his coming. And so God is doing a work in all of us. Crushed, broken, and burning. So to be crushed, you know, everybody wants the blessing of the Lord. Everybody wants the anointing. But you're not going to get the anointing without going through the crushing. I'm just going to tell you, it won't happen. 
The crushing of the olive. You guys have heard me talk about this before. The little olive minding its own business in the olive tree. Never did anything to anybody. All of a sudden, one day, some guy comes up with a big stick, starts whacking it. He comes falling on the ground. Okay, his little world's been shaken. He's now dirty on the ground. The little olive wasn't expecting this, you know. I'm, the little olive says to himself, I'm just supposed to bring forth oil. Why is my world being shaken? Why am I hitting the ground like this? He's picked up by a stranger, brushed off, get all the junk off of him. He's put in the press. All of a sudden now there's a crushing. No, Olive is saying, I'm supposed to produce oil, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. You know, The crushing comes and the oil comes forth. God is wanting to do a work in all of us. River of Life, hear me. Where God is wanting to do a holy crushing in our lives. You know, the Bible talks about flies in the ointment. This is the time that God will get every fly out of your ointment. And the manure in the temple had to be trimmed daily and get that old wick, that, that, you know, that top part cut off. And there has to be this cutting out, this cleansing and this purification that comes in the crushing. But Hebrews 12 says that, that God is dealing with us as sons and daughters. When he chastises us and he disciplines us and he puts us through this crushing, it shows that we have his love and that we're not illegitimate children, but we are his children and he is doing a good work in us. And the book of James says to count it all joy when you go through these trials. But how many of you know that that's the last thing you want to do? You're saying, God, why is this thing crushing down on me? But God is simply saying, you want to be used of me. And you want to have a mighty anointing, you've got to submit to the process. Broken. See, God is looking for people like the woman that, that broke the alabaster box before the Lord. And she, remember how she washed the Lord's feet and she dried um, his feet with her hair and she was worshiping him. And Jesus said that, you know, this would be told everywhere the gospel goes, but, you know, what she did for him. Who much is forgiven, there is much love. Brokenness. A lot of people will look out. They're called into the ministry, but they look out at hurting people and people that they're going through a horrible time in life. They're, they're sick, they're oppressed, they're, they're going through difficulties. And they really don't have that broken heart toward them. See, you've got to allow the Lord to do a breaking in you where your worship will be purified, but also your intercession for people is out of a sincere love for them because of the process you've been through. David was promised the throne, but had to go through the caves. Joseph had the dreams, but he had to go through the pit and the prison. Israel had the promised land, but they had to go through the desert. There's a process that looks exactly the opposite of what God promised you. And through that time, there is a breaking that happens in you where God breaks your heart and now you have a tender heart toward God and toward people. You'll never be able to really be the intercessor that you need to be until you've been through some stuff yourself. And just like the priest in the tabernacle, they'd go in, they had that breastplate on that had the 12 stones, the 12 tribes of Israel that laid over their heart because God wanted them to really pray from their heart for God's people. So God's got to put us through some things that will crush us, 
so that the oil can flow. That will break us so that we really have his heart. Are y'all following me? And burning, the burning coals. Oh, there's a scripture in Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was trying to rebuild the walls and, and Sanballat and Tobiah and others were mocking them. And one of the things they mocked them, they said, can these burnt stones live? But you know what? It was those burnt stones that rebuilt that temple. And the Lord said that that second temple, the glory of the Lord was greater in that temple than it was in the first. Even though it had burnt stones and it wasn't as attractive, the glory was greater. Which one would you rather have? I'd rather have an increase of the glory. But see, God has got to do a work in us. As we lay down our lives and let the Lord begin to burn out everything that needs to go, begin to deeply consecrate us. I believe that we're unfortunately living in a time where a lot of pulpits out there and a lot of people out there are saying things that just make people feel good. But man, when I read the Bible, what I see is deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. What I see is we got to be crucified with Christ. It's not us who live any longer. So just telling people what they want to hear is not preaching the gospel. But God is wanting us to lay down our lives on the altar and let his fire begin to work through us and purify us and burn out all the junk. And see, it was in that outer court where the animals were sacrificed and the animals were burned on that altar, that wood that was continually in there. The priest had to go in there to that wood and he had to take some tongs and pull out a, a hot coal, if you will, out of that and carry it into the tabernacle. And it was that hot coal that was used to sprinkle incense on and that incense would come up. And if you were to look at the tabernacle and, and you were to lay like a person down and look at it from that perspective, the ark area is the head and the feet are down at that bronze altar. But you know where the heart is? The heart is the golden altar of incense. You know what God's saying? I want you to have a burning heart for me. The only way that your, your intercession and your worship will ever really truly be what it's supposed to be is that praise and worship, that prayer and intercession, that's incense. It has to come out of a burning heart. And so as we begin to go through this process in our own lives, God loves us and he's for us. He wants to help us. He wants to make us more like Jesus. See, a lot of people want to make it sound like God wants you to stay just like you are and he loves you like you are. I love you enough to tell you the truth. God wants you dead. He wants me dead. He wants Christ living his life through us. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He wants us totally crucified with Christ. We're a new creation. Christ lives through us. The old has passed away. Everything's become new. And once you really go through this process, you really start moving into the life that God has for you. In Leviticus 1 through 7, it talks about the different offerings that Israel had to do. And we know about the sin offering. We know about the guilt offering. This was paid for at Calvary. But there were three other offerings. The grain offering the peace offering, and the burnt offering. See, the grain offering for Israel to bring that grain, one of, one of the things they would bring is wheat. Wheat had to go through that crushing. Wheat has a hard shell around it, and they lay it down, and they put like a sled over it, and they crush it so you can get the grain out. 
And that's what I'm talking about. Grain represents our service for the Lord. You know, going out, reaping the sheaves, going out and doing what God's called us to do. For us to do what God's called us to do, and that we have this grain offering in our lives of service to Him, that we're doing something for His kingdom, we've got to have an anointing to be able to be effective. Uh, Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and He went around doing good, healing all oppressed of the devil. For us to do what we're called to do, there's got to be an anointing. Jesus, before he began his ministry, went to the River Jordan and submitted himself to be baptized of John. And I know that it was a passing of the priest and all that. But nonetheless, the Spirit of God descended on him. And when Jesus was being taken up before his disciples, if I can paraphrase it, Jesus was telling the disciples, don't just start things right now. Go to Jerusalem and wait until you're clothed with power from on high. There has to be an anointing. I can tell whenever somebody is singing a song and they're just there to entertain. And there's a place for good, you know, good music out there. I love music. But in the house of God, man, when somebody's anointed and they're really sincere in their worship in Him, you, it makes all the difference. When you're out witnessing and doing stuff for the Lord, it makes all the difference when you're anointed. I'll never forget the story Dr. Cho, uh, Dr. Cho told about how he got saved and he really wanted to be a witness. And, and he was going out there preaching to people and, and he was doing everything he could. And people got mad at him. He said, people wanted to beat me up. People wanted to throw things at me. And he said, I just did not understand. And I come back to my, he was talking about his mother-in-law. He was telling his mother-in-law about it. And she said, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You need the anointing. So Dr. Cho said, I went out in the woods, and he said, I found a tree. I hugged the tree, and I started praying. And he said, I told God, I'm not leaving this tree until you baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Because he saw that his mother-in-law would go out doing the same thing, and he said, people would cry. He said, I go out and do it, and they want to beat me up. He said, I didn't understand. So he went out there, he was like, Lord, you've got to baptize me in the Holy Spirit. You have got to anoint me. And so God touched him. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he said after that, everything changed. God, the Holy Spirit began to convict people. I'll never forget one time. God had really touched my life back in the days of Brownsville. And, and God really um, put an anointing. And I had to go through that whole crushing and everything else I'm preaching on. But I'm going to tell you, there was a time, though. There was a man by the name of Vern. I'll never forget this. He had come to fix my air conditioning. And there was a minister of a particular denomination that does not believe in the anointing or the gifts or anything like that. But this preacher loved God and was trying to witness to him and had been witnessing to him apparently for like years. And when I started talking to Vern, I didn't know any of this. And I said, hey man, did anybody talk to you about Jesus, why he died? I'm just trying to witness to him. And he said, look, I work with a preacher. I hear it all the time. I don't want to hear it. I said, all right, man, sorry. And so before I could finish... Because, I mean, as far as me talking to him, I didn't get anywhere. He shut me down. But I was about to leave, and the Holy Spirit fell. His face turns red. He starts tearing up. His lip starts quivering. His body starts shaking like this a little bit. And he looks at me and says, man, what's going on? That's exactly what he said. 
I knew it was the Holy Spirit. I could feel the anointing. I said, well, Vern, I said, you know, Jesus is trying to save you. He's doing everything he can. He's reaching out to you. And this is God touching you. And it was interesting because all those, however long, years, however long it was that this other guy was witnessing to him, Vern looks at me and says, what do I need to do? And I said, let me pray with you. And I led him to the Lord. And he had, he had such a smile after that. I'm going to tell you, it's the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will do what we can't do. I could not get through to him. You understand me? No matter how intellectual, no how, how much I tried to debate, no matter how much I tried to reason with him, none of that was ever going to get the job done with this guy. It had to be the Spirit of God. It's in the, in the days of revival. As I've read these stories in Hebrides and Ulster and other places, that's what people were so shocked in Ulster. They said they saw all these grown men. These, these were big, strong men that, that worked for a living out in the fields. And, and they said it shocked them to see them down on their knees trembling and weeping before the Lord getting saved. That's the Spirit of God. Crushed. We've got to go through that crushing so the anointing will flow. That's the grain offering. The next offering is what's called shelamim in Hebrew, but it's the peace offering. This has to do with worship and prayer. Israel was to bring these animals, and they, they were to sacrifice, and it was a peace offering unto the Lord. And for us to really have the prayer life that we need to have, as I mentioned earlier, there's got to be that brokenness that comes. Where God gives us a heart of love for people that we really weep for the lost. Throughout history, I believe it was um, the man that wrote Send the Fire. I can see his face. Somebody help me out. The um, Salvation Army leader, William Booth. William Booth. I believe it was him. So, because he had such a revival anointing. And somebody wrote William Booth and said, we're, we're praying for revival. We're praying for God to move. And he said, do you have any advice? And William Booth wrote back and said, have you tried tears? And they began to really weep before the Lord and pray and cry out. And you know what? The Spirit of God fell. See, there's got to be a brokenness for souls. Steve Hill wrote a book at Brownsville called Tears. There's something about having a heart for the lost and it being sincere before the Lord. That you really care about people. You know, some of the greatest healing ministries are those that have a, a heart for the sick and they weep for the sick. You hear what I'm saying? It's compassion. God's love. And then finally, the burnt offering. Is it called the Ola in Hebrew? And the burnt offering, Israel would bring the animals and, and it was completely consumed in the fire. And the parallel we have now in Romans chapter 12 is that the Bible says we're to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. So what God is wanting us to do, as I mentioned earlier, is that we lay our lives down on the altar and say, Lord, I give you everything. I lay my life here that I be crucified with Christ. Let your fire come baptize me in your Holy Spirit in fire and burn out all the old junk and pollution out of me. And that's a burning heart. See, once you go through the crushing 
and the anointing is flowing. Once you get broken and you begin to really have a heart for the lost and have a heart for the hurting and you really weep for them, God is also wanting to send a burning heart in you. See, I look at people, there, there's certain people throughout history that stuck out. And I look at like a Leonard Ravenhill. And from the time he was a young man, he read a book by David Brainerd who was a, a missionary. And Leonard Ravenhill was really young. And he read about David Brainerd who was a young man that, that gave his life for the Indians and, and how Brainerd would really travail and cry out to God. And, and Leonard Ravenhill read that and he, he thought to himself, there's no way that man could pray like that unless the Spirit of God touched him. This, this has got to be God. And he said, if, if he could have it, I've got to have it. And Leonard Ravenhill began to cry out to God to give him what Brainerd had. I mean, a real burden for souls and a real fire and a real passion and a powerful prayer life. And Leonard Ravenhill became a powerful man of prayer. I mean, a powerful man of prayer. And it was out of that prayer life that his ministry was used so powerfully in a prophetic voice. He was a fiery preacher, man, everywhere he went. And you know what? Whenever Leonard Ravenhill died, he was so faithful. I mean, even in his old age, he was so on fire for God. And people like Steve Hill and others sought him out and became like his spiritual children. And this is how powerful Leonard Ravenhill was with God. I, I personally believe this. When Leonard died right before the Brownsville revival, um, I believe this, and a lot of people do, that the mantle Ravenhill fell on Steve Hill. And that's why Steve was like he was at Brownsville. But see, there were certain people in history that they burned all the days of their life. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? They never grew cold. They didn't backslide. They didn't get away from God. They didn't allow themselves just to become a nominal Christian that just goes to church and sleeps through church, you know, or whatever. They, they were on fire for God. They were hungry. And they burned all their life. So here at this Hanukkah time, Oh, we got to be a people that will be separate. This is my heart cry. I'm not going to assimilate into this world system. And I'm not going to let the church I pastor to become like the world. I'm not going to try to win the world by being like the world. I'm not going to try to entertain people into heaven. I'm still convinced that the Word of God and the Spirit of God and what Jesus operated in is enough today, just like it was all those years ago and in previous revivals. Here's the last couple of things with Jacob and Esau. See, Esau, Esau amalgamated with the Canaanites. He assimilated into that culture and it grieved Isaac and Rebekah because Esau was supposed to be, you know, been the firstborn, but yet he was marrying Canaanite women, building Canaanite houses and becoming like the Canaanites. And in other Jewish writings, it says that Esau's wives were actually worshiping the pagan gods. And it grieved Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, on the other hand, had a love for God. And he honored his parents. And Isaac told him, Jacob, listen, please go to my you know, brother-in-law out there, to uh, our relatives, rather, with uh, Rebekah's brother-in-law, or brother Laban. Go out there to him and find a wife among our people. Don't marry these Canaanites. And Jacob honored God and honored his parents. And he went all the way to Laban's house to, to marry Rachel and Leah. And Jacob had to deal with his past. Everybody has a past. 
Everybody has things in their past, okay? And Jacob had to deal with that. And when he was with Laban, he understood. God allowed him to go through trials there, but he began to understand what it's like to be deceived by a relative like he was, like he did to Esau. Now Laban is deceiving him, and it was hurtful. And Jacob leaves Laban's house, and you remember the story where he's going to have to face Esau. And Jacob wrestled with that angel throughout the entire night. You know what that was? It was Jacob wrestling with God to get on the other side of his past. He wanted to be an overcomer. He wanted his past to be left in the, in the past and him to be able to move on with God. And he wrestled and wrestled. He refused to give up until he became an overcomer. And God changed Jacob's name that night. Um, it was Yaakov in the Hebrew. It was a supplanter, a deceiver. But God said, you'll ne- no longer be called Yaakov. Now you're going to be called Israel, which means prince of God or to reign like God or to be an overcomer, a ruler. And here's the interesting thing about this. When Jacob and Esau met, Jacob was willing to really truly deal with his past and die to it. It was a fullness of time. He had his 12 sons. The stage had been set. He had had the blessing on his life, but now he had to really conquer his past and move forward with God. Now he had the name change. Esau and him meet, but Esau never changed. Esau still had those type of wives. He had moved to Seir, and he had you know, built up his little family and kingdom there. But here's the interesting thing. Seir has to do with a goat. And listen, in the Bible, the goat represents sin and rebellion. And Esau never repented. There's people like that. They go to church, and you'll talk to them, and you'll tell them, hey, man, the Bible says this, and they'll still go out and do the opposite. They've never repented of their sin and their rebellion against God. They're arrogant. And just like Esau, Esau became a wicked nation, Edom, that ended up being an enemy of God. And while Esau went back to Seir, the place of the goat, the place of rebellion, Jacob had really dealt with his past. And you know where Jacob went from there? Jacob went to a place called Sukkot, which means tabernacles. He went to the place where God's presence tabernacled. And from there, Jacob had to return to Bethel. He knew I have to go to Bethel where that place where I had that encounter with God where I saw the ladder and I experienced the Lord. I'm telling you something. God will do a work in your life or if you'll deal with your past for real, he'll take you to a place where his presence tabernacles. In the early days of your life where you had your burning bush experience, where God did something in your life, he'll bring you back to that place again. But this time it'll be much more glorious. So here at the Hanukkah time, the Bible says in the days of Elijah that uh, Jezebel tore down that altar at Mount Carmel. And Jacob, I mean, sorry, Elijah called the prophets of Baal. And he told them, you remember all the story, I'm not going to get into it. They danced around naked or whatever, cut themselves. They were doing everything they could to kind of try to conjure that demon. And God wouldn't let nothing happen. But after 
they did all their mumbo jumbo. Elijah stood up and, and prayed and the fire fell. But the Bible says that Elijah had to rebuild the altar that Jezebel tore down. And in the days of the Maccabees, Antiochus had defiled that temple with the pig. And they had to come in, they had to clear away the old altar, and they had to rebuild a new altar and consecrate to God. I'm going to tell you, here at Hanukkah of all times, this is the time to really consecrate our lives back to God and to rebuild the altar of prayer again. Listen, if we've allowed any, anything in our prayer life to subside, this is the time to say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to rebuild the altar of prayer in my life again. Are we really praying like we used to? Are we really pursuing a personal relationship with him? Also in the time of the Maccabees, they had to reconsecrate the temple. Is there anything in your life over this last year that has defiled your temple? This is the time, us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, to consecrate our lives afresh. And what concerns me, I'm going to say this plainly, this isn't going to be an innuendo or anything, I mean, it's just blunt. But I think a lot of people out there now really don't even know the Lord. You know how many people I talk to out there? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do this. And they're living in total sin. Listen, if you're a real Christian and it's real, hello? Are y'all hearing me? If it's real, you're not going to feel comfortable with that stuff anymore. I am shocked. At, and it, it, there's, there's no fear of God. Matthew seven twenty one. This is them in the Bible. You ready? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I... I you know, prophesied in your name. I did all this stuff. I healed the sick. I drove out demons. I can just hear them. I went to church. I gave in the offering. I went out doing this, that, and the other. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. This is the time to consecrate our lives and really get things right with God and be a real Christian. Also, fresh oil and fire. Hanukkah is the time that you look at the oil, how God gave supernatural oil that lasted for eight days and that fire burned on it. God, the Bible says in Matthew 25 that Jesus is coming for wise virgins with extra oil and he warned us to keep our lamps trimmed. This is the time that we can examine ourselves. Are we full of extra oil? Have we trimmed the wick of our lives? Are we really a wise virgin that's looking for his coming? I remember, remember me sharing that about the Jewish weddings in the past. The bridegroom would come in there and he would talk to the girl's father and then she would drink the cup and she would agree to be his wife, but he would go prepare a place for her. She would then put on a veil, letting everybody know I'm spoken for, and she would keep herself pure for her coming bridegroom. And at night, she didn't know when he was going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. So she had her lamp there. She would trim the wick so that it would burn throughout the night. But she had extra oil by her bed so that if he did come in the middle of the night, she could pour that extra oil in there and be ready. It's a symbol. It's a picture and type prophetically of us being wise virgins with extra oil that we're ready. We're looking for his coming. And here we're going to pray now in just a moment. But the Bible says, or rather, this is what I wrote here in the notes. So it says, overall, the church has been assimilating itself with the world. The upcoming generation doesn't go to church. 
Worship has become entertainment. Preaching has become motivational speaking in many places. There is little, if any, presence of, presence of God and power in a lot of churches. Where's the altar ministry? Where's from the pulpit saying, you've sinned against God? This is what the Bible says. Now come down to the altar and let's get things right with God. Where's that? I grew up my whole life with that. Where did that go? Where's the gifts of the Spirit? Where's the presence and power of the Holy Spirit coming in to convict? Jesus said when the Spirit of God comes, He will convict the world of sin. He will lead you into truth. He'll lead you into righteousness. He will take the things that I've said and He'll help you understand them. He'll even show you things in the future. When the Spirit of God comes, you believe that Jesus would say, it's better for you that I go away? So that the Spirit of God will come. Did anybody ever think about that for a minute? How in the world could Jesus make such a statement? It's better for you that I go away? Everybody there in that room was probably thinking, man, are you crazy? It's good that you leave us? I don't think so. But Jesus said, no, it is. Because when I go, the Spirit of God will come. We understand the Holy Spirit is a person. He's here with us. He's here to convict us and to deal with us and help us become more like Jesus and lead us into truth and righteousness. Like the Maccabees, we need a supernatural victory. Man's efforts will not get the job done. It will not be by human might or effort, but it will have to be by the Spirit that these things take place. And that's how it was in the days of the Maccabees. There was no way that they could have won that victory in the natural. They were far outnumbered. And not only outnumbered, they were facing trained warriors, and they themselves were inexperienced in warfare like that. There was no way in the natural they could have won. But see, here's what happens. Satan moves in like that. He gets people assimilating themselves into the world. He starts clamping down on God's people, but then God shows up. And God says, I tell you what, cast the net on the other side. And all of a sudden, a supernatural harvest comes in. All of a sudden, the heavens open and the power of the Holy Spirit falls. People you would have never thought in a million years would get saved are getting saved. People are really repenting. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God breaks forth and everything changes. And that's going to be the only thing that's really, truly going to work with the majority of this generation is a move of God. And it's coming. I'm telling you, it is coming. How many are hungry to see a move of God? I thank God for what God's doing in River of Life. I feel the fire of God and the presence of God in here, reminiscent of what I experienced in the 90s, and I thank God for it. But it grieves me deeply, more than you guys know, to look out here after we get out of church and see all these lost people. And to see people that sit in churches out there that really don't even know the Lord. They're not even right with God. And they would go to hell if they died. We need God to come down and convict and deal with people. So Father, I pray, Lord, in this sermon tonight that you'll help us rebuild the altar of prayer to reconsecrate our lives unto you. And Lord, that we might burn for you. Help us, Lord, through these crushing times that there'll be a pure oil flow. Help us, Lord, in these times of brokenness that we really get a love and a heart for the hurting people out there, that we have tears, that you would give us a burden for souls, that we can really have a brokenness before you. And also, Lord, that we will burn for you, that we will be your flaming ones, Lord, that there will be a fire in our eyes, there will be a fire in our hearts, And that people see us, they see something different because it's the fire of the Holy Spirit burning bright in our lives.
We need it, Lord. Let it come. In Jesus' name, send your holy fire tonight. I feel that tonight. I feel the fire of the Holy Spirit coming in this place. Lord, baptize us with your fire. We can go ahead and shut down recordings. I want us where we're at just for a few moments. If you would, just make an altar where you're at. I want us to really pray. Lord, draw us back into prayer. Rebuild the altar in our lives. Consecrate our vessel unto our temple. Lord, let us be a clean vessel again.